Hello, I'm Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin, child psychotherapist and clinical psychologist. Welcome to Talking Child Development, the podcast of the Association of Child and Family Development, a not-for-profit organization which is based in Melbourne, Australia. We aim to disseminate information about all aspects of child and family development to other professionals and to the broader community. We are concerned in these podcasts to delve a little deeper into the whys and wherefores of child and family life. We're also trying to get away from a focus that's purely behavioral and strategy and quick fix based to look at what lies beneath and why things happen in families the way they do. You can find more information on our website at www.acfd.com.au. Today, I'm delighted to talk to fellow child psychotherapist Ryan Lowe, who is based in London and who is the founder and clinical director of the Therapeutic Consultants, a multidisciplinary therapy clinic which has a number of services in both North and South London. Ryan has worked as a child and family psychotherapist for 18 years and as an expert witness in the court system for 12 years. Ryan trained as a child psychotherapist at the Tavistock Clinic in London. During her training, she worked at the Mulberry Bush Day Unit, a school for children with complex needs and in the adolescent department of the Tavistock Clinic. After qualifying, she worked at the Monroe Family Assessment Centre, a division of the Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust, which carries out assessments for the family law courts. She has also been a tutor and examiner on child psychotherapy trainings. Hello, Ryan, and welcome. I wonder if we can start with a question, which is what is child psychotherapy? and what is involved in carrying out child psychotherapy. I think a lot of people are confused about the three psychs, psychology, psychiatry, and psychotherapy. It would be good to get some clarification. Hello, Ruth. Um, The main difference is in the trainings that we do. Psychiatry starts with a medical training, and therefore it's much more based on physiology and a medical perspective. In Britain, they're the only one of the three sites who are allowed to prescribe medication. And in the main, they're the only ones who do the diagnosing of disorders or mental health issues. In a very broad sense, the difference between psychology and psychotherapy is that psychology focuses a little more on behavior and is often a bit more practical in its approach. However, clinical psychology is really broadly practiced in different ways from those who are very behavioral in their approach to those who have more of a mindfulness-based way of working, to something that's really almost indistinguishable from from psychotherapy. Psychotherapy is the one training that focuses and takes into account the unconscious all the way through the training. And it's about trying to understand the underlying and often unconscious parts of our mind that are getting in the way of our relationships and our functioning. Often I work with really bright, thoughtful parents who've examined all the information they have and worked hard to get things right for their family, but things are still going wrong. In those cases, it's really helpful to look at the unconscious processes in the way. For example, the unknowable fear of anger or violence that might stem from a traumatic childhood 
or a concern of putting down boundaries for fear of not being loved. Thank you, uh, Ryan, that's very interesting. I, I was reminded reading your profile online that when we first met a couple of years ago, you referred to your own upbringing, which included a great deal of travel through Europe, India, Indonesia, and America. And I know you, you have an Australian connection as well. Can you tell me a bit about these travels, how they came about, and how this influenced your decision to become a child psychotherapist? Yeah, my parents were proper traveling hippies, and we lived all over the world in different communities. Um, and I think I have to admit to it being a really big influence on my choice of career. My parents were both therapists of a kind, although in a very new age hippie way. Um, but I was part of a community of children where there was a lot of neglect and trauma and abuse. And I'm absolutely certain that I've spent most of my adult life trying to heal the traumas that I was witness to as a child. I suppose that applies to quite a lot of us working in psychotherapy, of, of having a connection with the things that have happened to us as, as children. You've had so much experience in many varied clinical settings, and I would love to know more about your work and your impressions of this work. Can we start with the Mulberry Bush Day Unit and the Monroe Family Assessment Centre? People may not be aware that the Monroe Family Centre was set up with money bequeathed by the famous film star Marilyn Monroe, who had herself had a miserable childhood and was in therapy for many years as an adult. What was it like working at these centres and what sorts of problems did the children and their families present? Um, I am really grateful to have worked at the Marble Bush and the Monroe. They were quite unusual and extraordinary places to be. Both are places that dealt with children at their most vulnerable and it was a huge privilege to do that work. Uh, it was really, really hard. And I had to manage things that are pretty full on, like having a young boy pee in the waste paper bin and then throw it over me, or once somehow managing to have a finger full of poo shoved in my mouth. Um, but on a more therapeutic note, I learned to sit with the children in the very deepest depths of despair and bear the pain that they felt alongside them. And I hold a really special place in my heart for all the children I worked with there. I doubt they will ever leave me. I think that's very much what happens with longer term therapy, isn't it? Or even short term therapy with children that we remember um, the children, we, they're, they're absolutely unforgettable. I remember given my name with a funny Schmidt in the middle and a child uh -huh. who I saw who always referred to me as Messer Schmidt, especially <laughs> when he wasn't very happy about some of the things that I said. Um, do you think that the presentation of problems has changed over the years? Do you think that parents these days are concerned with issues that perhaps are different from the ones that parents faced, say, even 20 years ago? Um, I'm not sure if it's exactly the same in Australia, but in the UK, and I know the figures in the US, there's been a huge rise in the number of children and adolescents who are struggling. A lot of the reasons for the referrals to mental health services have their roots in anxiety and low self-worth. And I do think that our children face a world which is not really suited to the good mental health and flourishing of adolescents. There is an awful lot of uh, academic and social pressure, a lot of social scrutiny, and then added to this is a life lived in search of instant fulfillment on screens and social media. 
and it has led to a generation of really stressed, anxious and depressed kids. I just wondered, do you think there is anything we should be doing differently for these problems? I suppose one of the issues is that uh, people of a certain generation, and I have to include myself, have clearly never, wouldn't have grown up with social media. And even my daughter in her earlier years, thankfully, didn't have social media. It, it is a very particular kind of challenge for young people and children, isn't it? It really is. And, and we were talking earlier, I have somehow managed to keep my daughter off social media too, because I do think it is um, a really toxic way of relating to people and of coming to build an identity. Uh, kids build an identity based on what they put up on, on, on the different forums rather than having any connection to who they really are and kids can get us so far disconnected from who they really are and caught up in trying to be part of whatever social network they're on um, that they become uh, really ill as a result. So I think um, social media and screen times generally are things that uh, our generation of parents uh, are were unequipped to deal with. We didn't know this was coming. We didn't know what we were going to be dealing with. I remember when my kid, my kids were little, I was so excited to buy them screens. It seemed like such a fun thing to do. And I really wish I hadn't. I really wish I had kept them screen free for as long as possible. Um, the other thing is that uh, I think most parents are screen addicted too. And we spend an awful lot of time half with our children and half with our phones or our computers or whatever else we're doing. And I think there's a real loss of quality time with our kids. Um, and I think our kids are reflecting, in a way, a whole uh, society's lack of attention span and lack of capacity to stick with people and really be with each other properly. Yes. I mean, it gives new meaning to the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder, doesn't it? As though attention is ADD a and ADHD with the hyperactivity aspect of it, as though this is a, a syndrome that is really only child-centered, you know, somehow it's the child's fault, whereas the whole of our society has got caught up in a sort of ADHD kind of uh, world. Yeah, um, yes. And the other thing that we expect of our children then is a real focus on their academic work, which is in complete uh, contrast to that more attention deficit way of being that we're training their brains to do on screens. Yes. So a lot of them really struggle and academic pressure is one of the big reasons for self-harm, depression and suicide attempts in adolescence. Do you think schools are aware of that? Are they able to handle that in any meaningful sort of way? I think the, the, the thing about schools is that their job is to educate and, and the people who are there really believe in education as the thing that is the most important part of childhood and that's great because they're passionate about it and they will really work hard to make that happen but there are some kids for whom that's never going to be their path that you know that for whom the whole of their school career is torture because they just aren't suited to it and uh, and it also means that they're not uh, minded to think about emotional and social issues that's not their they're not given training on it it's not their 
the thing that speaks to them, the thing that speaks to them is their passion for maths or their passion for English literature. And, uh, and I also think, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but I know here there's an awful lot of pressure put on teachers to get their right grades for the students in their classes. And that pressure then has to go onto the children. There's no other place for it to go. And there are many schools in Britain where teachers' pay is related to their performance of their, the, their students in exams. Yes, that's really extraordinary. I mean, I, I, I'm sure this is a topic for a totally other talk <laughs> we can talk about, which is the place of the school in, in the life of children and in the therapeutic life of children. But perhaps we'll have to reserve that for another conversation. And yes. so in the meantime, I would love to hear about your amazing, um, well, I suppose it's a business, it's a psychotherapy, the therapeutic consultants. Who works in the multidisciplinary team and what kinds of problems do you deal with as a team or individually? Um, well, thank you for your kind words. Um, I am really proud of TTC. Um, we started as a really little group of therapists and uh, a psychiatrist who had, I had worked with at the Monroe, who I have the utmost respect for and is still with us. Um, and I did that because uh, going into private work, I did I wanted to be able to work with people who needed a bit more input than just one person, one therapist at home. Um, so there were three child psychotherapists and the child psychiatrist um, but there was clearly a huge gap in the market because over the last 10 years it just expanded from those four people into in one consulting room to a group of over 80 clinicians across five clinics and 11 consulting rooms and I think if we could expand faster there would be space for it we're just limited by what how fast we can move um, <clears throat> I've tried really hard to get clinicians of all trainings working together and really respect the work that others do. I think that's one of the bigger challenges in our profession. Um, it's ongoing on the whole, but I think we've achieved that and work really well together. And we range from CBT to EMDR to psychotherapy of all kinds to psychiatry. Um, I think that a lot of the studies that have been done on the efficacy of mental health support point to the fact that the relationship between the therapist and the client is really the most important thing. And the training is the thing that helps that along rather than being the deciding factor. And it's definitely what I have found. All our clinicians are, all our clinics are run by child psychotherapists who know the therapists and the clinicians really well within their clinic. So when we speak to families on the phone, part of our skill is knowing who they're likely to click with and what approach is likely to fit with the family, which is a real skill on its own. But I think it's one of the, the reasons that we have are we do well, that we take that time in a way that can certainly can't. It'll be whoever is available um, who's assigned to the family. Um, in terms of what problems we manage, um, I'm pretty bad at saying no to anyone. So if we've been asked for something, I've usually tried to find the right person to fill that gap. So we deal with most things. Uh, we don't have an inpatient unit yet, although it's definitely one of the things I would love to do. Um, 
But if a child needed or was likely to need inpatient care, then we would recommend that they be seen within the NHS. And I do think that uh, those serious cases are something that the NHS does really, really well. Um, but short of that, we're able to deal with most things. Um, the thing that is really sad to me is that we are a private service and only available to those that can afford it. We do have a limited low cost service, but this is run by trainees and newly qualified therapists. So there is a limit to what we can ask them to take on at that point. Um, I would be really delighted to be put out of business by the NHS providing the same level of service that we do. And that's something I will happily uh, work with anyone to put in place. It's, I think that's extraordinary in the space of 10 years. I mean, the level of expansion is absolutely amazing. And it is so impressive. I mean, one of the things I wonder about is whether you've ever considered running um, a day services. You know, it's something I've thought about over the years, The something like a, a therapeutic kindergarten or a therapeutic childcare centre where children, you know, if, you, if, we, if we think about um, prevention really starting, not obviously with infancy, but I think a lot of problems become manifest around the period of the sort of, three years old four years old and so on and the idea mm -hmm. of perhaps having something like a therapeutic kinder or therapeutic childcare, where parents and children can come together and and where you can offer some sort of assessment or therapy but also um sort of change through life as it were you know not just therapy but it's a bit, bit actually looking at you know levels of interaction you know how everybody gets mm. on and just just throwing that in as a thought mm. oh it's a lovely thought um a lot of us have done the vig training which is the video interaction guidance and um that focuses a lot on the interplay between often young children and parents um but one of the reasons we haven't done anything with under fives is that that is one of the areas that's funded slightly better within the NHS and within the community and statutory services. So we don't get that many referrals for under fives. I think there are more places for parents to go with young, young well, children. That's, that's impressive. I'm Actually, I'm relieved yeah. to hear that in a way. I mean, I'm really, really pleased that the NHS... Yeah. Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services are focusing on that. So that's that's great. So that's one thing that you don't immediately <laughs> <laughs> not my first on. priority. Yes. But I do feel like as a result, we're fighting fires. You know, we're fighting the, you know, one of the things about being a child psychotherapist is we often are drawn to it because we want to go in at the root cause of things rather than deal with symptoms. And I think just at the moment where there is such a, a problem with adolescent mental health, it feels more like we're dealing with symptoms for the first time, that this is all of these kids are a symptom of some of some other root problem that it gnaws at me that I can't get at because I think that's a political career that I don't have. Yes. Well, I suppose it's socio-political, isn't it? Because in a way it, it is about, I mean, as we were just talking a bit earlier, it's, it's obviously about COVID to a large extent, but it's also about what society we want young people to be in. And it's about a responsibility yeah. that society has that really even the best mental health services can't resolve. I mean, there's, there's got to be, yeah. I'm just talking about the idea of, a, of community responsibility. It's got to be broader than yeah. um, uh, sort of looking at symptomatology in the young person, as it were. Yeah. Yes. And I do think that there's education that the government could put out about 
social media and screens and academic pressure that would make a big difference. Yes. Um, <clears throat> for example, I know that all the Silicon Valley Apple uh, tech giants don't let their children on social media or absolutely I understand. I, yes yes i've heard that they keep them away don't they so it's yeah. there's something slightly wicked about making it available for the rest of the world and protecting yes. your own children isn't there so I'm, yes i feel is. i feel that must be said yeah so just looking at training and I suppose our joint our training um you mentioned that although you trained at the Tavistock clinic you have developed your own way of working with an understanding of children and families and I'd say you know you and me both you've said that you focus particularly on bonding attachment and containment issues within families can you tell us a bit more about this um, how would these issues typically play out with the people you see? Yes. So I think the reason I first reached out to you, and I can't remember if I called or emailed, was because I could see we all had both had the same training and had both taken it in slightly different ways. And I guess being in Australia, you were really free to do that. I uh, I had to fight quite hard in the UK to be allowed to do my own thing. Um, yes, but I love the work um, that you do. And I love the idea of working with the entire network. And I do think that it is a really effective way of rethinking the training that we were given and applying it to families. Um, we do try to emulate that a bit at TTC, but it's not quite the basis of what we do in the same way. Um, partly, I think we are so busy just kind of dealing with the avalanche of work that comes in at us. We are, uh, it would be great to take a step back and have a look at uh, what underlies it a bit. And we are looking more at parent work, for example, as being a, you know, something that we try to make a more in, integral part of what we do. But parents aren't very keen on it. I don't know if you found that too. But yes, if I were to describe my own model, um, I think it's a really relational way of uh, working with people, which is something I wasn't taught to do. I think uh, uh, that I am really, really grateful for the training that I had and the rigorous analytic understanding that I was given as part of that it really lit a spark in my mind and it became part of the way that I understand myself and my clients and the whole world in general. Um, there were a few moments in my training that felt like they unlocked pieces of information about the universe that made sense of things in a whole new way. Um, the first of that was when I was in the seminar with someone presenting an observation that took place in September uh, at the nursery. Uh, the children were on a climbing frame and they were talking about Christmas and how far away it was and how it takes ages for it to get there. And there was suddenly a little click in my head and I realised that they were also talking about the experience of waiting for their parents. Uh, that, you know, they'd been waiting ages and all day and they were desperate for their parents to arrive and it still wasn't coming. And for some reason, that little insight helped me see how all of us make these unconscious associations in our mind and that therapists can use this to untangle what's going on in people's unconscious minds. And since then, I've just developed that very particular little skill of being able to make analytic links. 
And it feels a bit like a superpower to me. I don't always know how I got there, but if I work backwards, I can usually understand how it fits. Um, I also think it might be the thing that makes uh, psychoanalysts and psychotherapists, analytic psychotherapists unpopular because it feels a bit intrusive sometimes that we've jumped to make these links that weren't specifically given to us in our clinical setting. So I am a bit careful about how I use it. Um, the second insight, which was so important, was in reading Wilfred Bion, who is uh, one of, in my opinion, one of the greatest uh, Kleinian thinkers and writers. Uh, and he worked at the Tavistock and was in analysis with Klein. Um, and he is a bit my hero. I think maybe one of the things that makes me love him so much is he also grew up in India, where I grew up. And I think uh, we were both third culture kids and had a, a slightly different way of looking at society. Um, so yes, he's the person I would use up my one wish to go back in time and talk to. His theory of containment was like a little click that seemed to answer to me the meaning of life when I realized that all babies and all children and all adults are still searching for this feeling of being safely contained and held in the arms and mind of another. And uh, that that was something that I had been desperate for all my life and had been searching for. So now I think my way of working is a mixture of the relational achievement that I think underlies all human relationships and certainly all my therapeutic relationships and the use of beyond to hold the client and understand human nature. And then finally, the use of that really brainy bit of analytic understanding that can shed light on those dark unconscious corners. Well, thank you so much for explaining that. I think, you know, you mentioned the leap that psychotherapists do that can seem so disconcerting uh, to people sometimes when they say, well, where is the evidence or what did I, did I tell you that, and actually, in a sense, they did, because we're also trained to take into account nonverbal communication and yeah. how people, it's not just what people say, it's how they say it and the yeah. tone, you know, that's really part of our training. That's, it's, it's really being acute and, 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 and being able to observe, you know, in a way what lies beneath. Um, I see that you've put out some very interesting videos for parents on telling children the, the truth, I think that was one of the, the ones that I saw, or on yeah. dealing with um, everyday negative feelings. And you've also put out videos on blended families. Are there any other videos available? Um, when I saw the your video on telling children the truth, I, it seemed to me so important because often parents can act as though children are living alongside them in the family rather than in the family or they can use an excuse and they can say, oh, well, they don't know what's going on. You know, for example, when parents are thinking of separating or they're unwell or something like that. And that's, it's always wishful thinking and it's not in the best interests of the child. Yes, so um, I absolutely hate doing video recordings, uh, but I'm really enjoying doing this. And uh, I was just thinking, I you know, doing the videos, I always get so nervous and I kind of lose my normal relatedness, but maybe because we're speaking together, uh, it feels really different. Um, but I do think that this um, idea that people have that children um, 
don't you know what they don't know they that you know, won't affect them uh, is uh, something that I would like to get information out there on and I do think that this is the way that people take in their information at the moment so I do try with some of the videos and, and podcasts in particular there are a few things which would make such a difference if parents could keep it on board um, and being truthful with children is one of those it is really easy as a parent to hope that our kids don't pick up on things and I catch myself doing it sometimes and I spend my life talking to other people about it so if I'm doing it I'm pretty sure others are too um, but children rarely miss anything you know their whole uh, survival is based on being very attuned to parents uh, both conscious and unconscious communication uh, so they pick up on things that parents really wouldn't realize they pick up on um, and ignoring that means that they're given a message that they're not allowed to talk about it and that's the bit that I find really worrying I think because of the crisis that our children are going through at the moment they badly need to learn to keep talking no matter what's going on in their heads and if we don't teach them this both consciously and unconsciously they are going to be more at risk of mental health issues. Um, I so totally agree. I mean, one, one could almost have a sort of sign up in the city saying, keep talking, you know, talk yeah. to your children, just keep talking, keep the communication open, doesn't matter what you say, you know, just be, yeah. just listen and talk, talk and listen. Right? Yeah. I think that should be a sort of major mantra. Just going, there was a, sorry, yes. There was a beautiful program on TV recently by, um, Roman Kemp, who is the son of a, a musician and is also a TV presenter. And he, one of his best friends committed suicide as a young man. And he did a, a big, it was it was beautiful. It was hard to watch because it was terribly, terribly sad. But uh, that was his message was, you just need to talk. You Men in particular, boys are taught not to talk and not to open up to their friends. And that was his message. So uh, there are, yes. there isn't a big sign up in the city yet, but there are a couple of yes. documentaries. Maybe there. you can get that organised, Ryan. You're amazing. The signs in the city. <laughs> yes, a sign in the city. Absolutely. Yes. So you mentioned working with blended families. Um, uh, and I was just wondering, one of the issues I've noticed with respect to working with blended families is that the therapy can be bedeviled by the fact that one partner, um, who I'm afraid is almost always the father, who has repartnered, wants to instate his new partner as the mother of his children and, and involve her as a key person in discussions about the children. And I find that it's very important to assert who the key players are. You know, things can get so murky and complicated and that it's very important to sort of go through it all and say, well, who are the key players? Where is the, who is the mother? Who is the father? Who are the children? And so that the um, new partners don't have to get drawn into a conflict that has nothing to do with them or, or a history that's got nothing to do with them. And I just wondered if that's something that you find in your work. Sure. So I just have to say that I love the work you do in this area, and I think you're much more experienced at it than I am. Um, <clears throat> it is something we often come across at TTC, um, but actually the only reason that those particular videos are up on the internet is that <clears throat> I was asked to give a talk and it was recorded and then we used a bit of it. Um, 
However, yes, I think there's a lot of wishful thinking generally in the process of divorce and forming new families. Um, even with the birth of siblings in you know, first families, there's an idea that children don't have the darker feelings of envy and rejection and guilt. Uh, but in fact, they have them just as strongly and if not more powerfully than adults. And sweeping them under the carpet just makes this bigger and bigger pile of darkness grow. And I think, again, that's one of the things about child psychotherapists and, and about our ACP training that I really value is that we are able to bring those less palatable aspects into the thinking of the family. And it's unpopular, but really useful if we have the kinds of families who can be persuaded of the value of it. Absolutely. Because again, it's also about talking and opening things up, isn't it? It's about allowing people yeah. to have the experiences that they have. And I like the way you say that if you don't do that, um, these emotions grow in the dark <laughs> and, and get yeah. bigger and bigger and overwhelm everybody. Yeah. I mean, it, it is just stunning to me how many children, and I know that parents always say, this is not your fault, it's nothing you've done. And yet children always think it's their fault. And uh, that's just, a, it's a, it must be a part of human nature that you know, they're not usually given the real reasons that those are seen to be too adult for a kid to understand the real reasons why parents uh, separate and get divorced. And I think um, we give them a sort of a very mild version, like you, know, mommy and daddy didn't love each other anymore or whatever, but they know there's something else much more complicated going on. And the fact that they know that there's a secret then somehow means they assume it's their fault, that that's why they're not being told. So yes, I think all of those things that aren't said just cause trouble in the dark, in the background. Absolutely, absolutely. And then just a final question. I'd like to ask you about your work as an expert witness. Um, I had a little bit of court experience years and years ago, which I can't say was the happiest, my happiest experience. And I think it's one hard. of the things that was very tricky was I remember the magistrate saying something like, are you telling us that this child really is able to communicate something about their feelings or whatever you know that you can take that you can take seriously the communication of the child and i had to spend quite mm. a lot of time saying yes absolutely um uh -huh. so it is both in the family and children's courts it's very specialist it's very important work and could you just tell us what it involves for you and and i know this is a big question but do you think that judges, magistrates and the legal profession validate the lived experience of the child and consider what the child communicates to be valid evidence? Um, yes. I mean, I think there are people more qualified than I. We do do it at TTC and I have done it at the Monroe. Um, but uh, I think partly because we've done it as part of these multidisciplinary teams, I've been less called to court, the reports have stood for themselves quite a lot. Um, but I, when I have gone to court and the cases I've been involved in have had really mixed experiences with judges. Um, some have been absolutely fantastic uh, and had an incredible grasp of children's capacities and on psychological processes generally. And there's one in particular that I remember the judge interviewing the, the child that I had been working with and 
the judge just got it, really, really got it. And, uh, and actually that was quite a therapeutic process for this child on its own, that you know, this judges are seen, you know, their children are prepared for court quite well and the judge is seen as almost godlike and their opinion is the one that really matters. So when this judge was able to say, I believe you, it was an enormously important thing for that child. Um, so I have uh, huge gratitude to some judges and uh, a couple of other judges who were very, very kind to me and protected the expert witnesses, you know, clearly being someone who has a defined area of knowledge, but that doesn't include the law and the processes of court and, and you know, the arguing of the barristers. Um, but then there are others who were just not as suited to that kind of psychological thinking. And uh, while they are super bright people, I think all judges are super bright people um, and can assimilate huge amounts of information. Some people are more comfortable with a kind of paper version or an academic version of, of information than a more psychological one. Sure. Well, I think it's it's very good to know about the uh, the really positive experiences and lovely to to hear about the judge. I mean, that's so meaningful. It sort of raises the the whole question of how you can have therapeutic communication for children in in a variety of different settings. So yeah. it's a it's a very nice sort of experience to to end on so ryan thank you so much for this very all your very rich communications and fantastic experience thank you very much indeed thank you ruth i've really enjoyed talking to you